to be reading from Mark chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8 today. So we have a lot of text to cover this morning as we continue through our series in the Gospel of Mark. And as we are going to go through these different sections of the Gospel of Mark, we're going to be able to identify patterns. I would encourage you that whenever you read scripture to hunt for patterns, look for patterns, be aware of, kind of have your antenna raised for patterns because you'll see things that are reoccurring and you'll see different themes and different ideas that perhaps there's something to that that could be more than perhaps what you initially would read if you just read through it. And this is one of those instances in scripture when we can read through the text that we're going to go through today. We're going to see three groups of people primarily that Jesus is interacting with and dealing with. And those three groups of people are really three groups of people that he dealt with regularly throughout his ministry. And I think that these three groups of people also represent where we can be in our heart where our heart can kind of bounce between different thoughts or different heart positions as God is helping us to grow and helping us to lean into him and trust him more. These three groups are this. Jesus is going to interact with the religious elite and the religious elite of his day were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. These people were very devout. These people were very sincere. And these people knew their stuff. And they had added a lot of complications Um, to the law that God had given, and many of them had allowed their own additions that they had added to what God had already said and their interpretations of it, that they had equated those things on par with scripture in their own minds, and they thought that they were right, they thought they were smarter than everybody, they thought that they were just morally superior to everyone, and because of all of their disciplines and all of their deep devotions and all of their knowledge, they thought that they were extra special, and you're going to see this in their attitude throughout scripture, but especially in these instances we're going to read today. The second group that we're going to see continuously throughout Jesus's ministry are the cautiously committed. They're people who are committed to Jesus and they certainly are following him, but they're cautiously committed because a lot of them have their own idea and they have their own agenda of why they're following Jesus. Most of them have in mind something that Jesus is going to do for them. They're committed to Jesus as long as Jesus meets their end goal or as long as Jesus does what um, they hope and think that he is going to do. Or maybe they even have a misunderstanding of Jesus' purpose totally and they're in it because of what they think Jesus is going to do. And this applies to most of the disciples during this period of Jesus' ministry. They were committed, but they were cautiously committed because they're regularly going to be in situations where they doubt Jesus or they question Jesus or they're wondering what is he doing or how is he able to do these things. And Jesus is just perplexed at this because he's regularly showing his power, showing his authority, telling them, teaching them all these things. And he's basically saying, you don't get it yet. You're committed, but you're kind of cautiously committed. And then there's a third group of people that we are going to see throughout the rhythms of our reading today, and that's the people that are desperate. The people who are desperate. They're desperate for compassion. They're desperate for Jesus. They're basically the group of people who they don't have any other alternative. Jesus is it. And they are willing to risk everything 
in order to have an encounter with Jesus because they have identified maybe not everything about him, but they've identified enough about him to know that he can do for them what no one else can. And so we're going to deal with the religious elite, the cautiously committed, and those who are desperate. Let's start reading in Mark chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. Remember, this is after the death of John the Baptist. That was the last thing that we read last week. And they laid John's body, beheaded body in a tomb. They returned to Jesus and they told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. So Jesus and his disciples are so busy doing all of this work, all these good things that they have not had any time to rest. They haven't had any time off. And so Jesus is saying, hey guys, let's take a break and let's rest a while. Verse 32, they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now, many saw them going and recognized them and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. So the crowd is following Jesus. Jesus is just trying to get a break, he and his disciples, right? They're just trying to catch a break and people see that they're in a boat because the area that they were traveling to, you could actually see over clear to the other side and people could see in the boat, they're going, hey, is that Jesus and his disciples in the boat? Oh man, let's go, let's follow him. And like the crowds, you know, they begin to spread the word about this. And so now they're following Jesus and these guys are in the boat just like, let's find a place where no one can see us. And they're not able to because people can clearly see them. And then instead of Jesus turning them away, even in all of their exhaustion, even in all this, Jesus still is moved by compassion because these people are desperate. They're hungry and what are they hungry for for him to teach them and so he teaches them the the in his humanity jesus desiring rest instead pushes through because compassion overtook him and compassion stirred him because he witnessed that these people are like sheep without a shepherd and he took that time and uh and he taught them there um, verse 35, and when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But Jesus answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them to eat? And he said to them, well, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fish. So apparently all these people were so desperate, they didn't even pack a lunch. One guy did, you know. One guy packed a lunch, right? And his mom probably did it for him, right? <laughs> or his wife. Um, but this guy, you know, like, you, you, you've, got, you've got some bread, you've got some fish, and that's all they could come up with. And there's thousands of people here. So you're talking about thousands of people immediately left whatever it was they were doing and weren't even concerned about eating except for one guy. He was like, yeah, I better take a snack. Right. And that's all they could come up with. He commanded them to all sit down in the groups on the grass. And so they sat down in groups by hundreds and fifties and taking the five loaves and two fish. He looked up to heaven and he said a blessing 
and he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. This is incredible, right? This is a miracle that this small, seemingly insignificant meal is now multiplied and you're seeing just this miracle in front of your very eyes. I, I personally have a theory about this and I'm okay with being wrong with my theory, um, but as we learned when we first started this study and going through the book of Mark, Mark is most likely um, the written account of Peter, um, the disciple of Jesus. And I think that it was Peter who challenged Jesus on this thing because it doesn't say who it was. And if you're Peter and you're having someone write down your story and there's something that could make you look bad, you don't give your name, right? And, and so, so I, I personally think that it was Peter. Now, remember when the apostle John, when he wrote his gospel, how does he describe himself? John, the disciple Jesus loved. If I write a gospel, I'm gonna be the disciple Jesus loved too in my own narrative. And so, but if I do something goofy, yeah, one of the disciples said something goofy because there, think about this. I mean, there's all these thousands of people and one of them, you know, probably Peter speaks up saying, send them away because these people need to eat. And Jesus looks at him and says, you give them something to eat. What do you, what do you, what do you mean, Jesus? Like what a weird thing for Jesus to do, right? They're kind of taken back at that. And then Peter, I think, steps up and says, what are we supposed to do? Like go get 200 denarii worth of bread. He's being super sarcastic because 200 denarii worth of bread, one denarii was equal to an entire day's wage for an average worker. So he's basically saying, you wanna take thousands of dollars and just go buy some bread, Jesus? And then Jesus said, all right, go find some food, right? Bring back what you have. And then he took it and he did something with it that just absolutely blew their mind. And you see through Jesus' compassion and you see through Jesus' miracle that he performed here, you get a window into the heart of God for people. You see the heart of God. You see how Jesus was willing to be intentionally inconvenienced for the benefit of others' sake. And you see how Jesus took something so small and insignificant and provided and took care of the people who were following him. How much more should we see that as we follow Jesus that he's gonna provide all of our needs even when it seems like the resources aren't there. Even when it seems like it doesn't make sense. Even when it would just be this, this thing that would be difficult for us to comprehend. He continues to provide because he is faithful and he cares even about our physical needs, amen? And we can see the heart of God through the way that Jesus interacts here at this moment. And we also see the desperation and the hunger in the people. And then we also see how the disciples, once again, questioning Jesus, not knowing, I mean, come on, you, you think about this, you're walking with Jesus and you're committed, but man, you're only committed so far because if you knew that you were walking with the one who spoke into nothing and, and everything was created, wouldn't you know that he had the ability? That's why Jesus flips the script on them and he's like, why don't you just do it? And they're like, well, we can't. Ah, exactly, you can't. It would be a lot of money and you don't have that much, do you? No. So he's trying to show them, listen, look at who I am. See who I am, recognize who I truly am. I mean, if you really saw who I was, then when, I, when, when you're with me, you know that I could speak 
and things are created. Things change. Have you not seen my authority? Have you not seen who I am? Because every time Jesus does something, they're just like, who is this guy that the winds and the waves obey him? Like they're just amazed at that. And Jesus is like, do you not know who's with you? Do you not know who I am? Do you not know that I actually care? Verse 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. When evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and they cried out for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded. And check this out, this is a strange scripture. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Isn't that weird? What does being in a boat have to do with bread? Isn't that an odd thing for Mark to write? They, they were very afraid for they did not understand the loaves. <laughs> like, that's just a weird sentence in general. So obviously there's a correlation here, right? There's a correlation that maybe we didn't see before because what he's trying to explain in this moment is that they obviously still aren't seeing who he is. They're still impressed that he can walk on water and calm a storm. They still are just like, oh, who is this? Oh, it's a ghost. Oh my gosh, what's gonna happen to us? Oh no. And it's like, they didn't understand the bread. They didn't get it. They didn't understand. Who are you with? Who is this? Like, like, I think so many times we, we doubt the power and the authority of God and, and because we forget sometimes who he is and we think that our issues and our challenges are just too big for him. You see, if, if he's supposed to be powerful enough to be able to handle the biggest issue you and I will ever and have ever faced, and that's the issue of sin that ultimately leads to death, then we have to trust he can handle a little waves and a little bit of wind and a little bit of hunger and a little bit of lack. We have to be able to trust he can handle those things if we think he can do this big thing. Because that thing that he's going to do and the actual reason he came far surpasses any of this other little stuff that we just marvel over, right? Far surpasses. And he's trying to show them who he is, but they didn't understand the miracle of provision. They didn't understand the loaves. They didn't get this thing. And it says their hearts were hardened. Isn't that weird? Your heart was hardened. Wow, they're not getting it. They're actually more wondering and doubting more and questioning. And it's causing them to actually get more skeptical. It's causing them to even more so be cautiously committed because they still aren't understanding who he truly is. Verse 53, when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and 
ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds wherever they heard that he was. And when he came in, in villages, cities, or countrysides, they laid sick in the marketplaces and implored him that he might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as has touched it were made well. Now, isn't this cool that you see the desperate people now back in action? They're carrying people like on beds. They're laying them in the streets. And those people that are laying in the streets are just hoping to touch the hem of his garment. Perhaps the news had traveled about the woman with the issue of blood who touched the hem of his garment and was made whole. Perhaps they're holding on to some Old Testament promise about the coming Messiah that there would be healing in his wings. Perhaps there's something that's been stirred in them that's caused them to say, if I could just touch a little bit of his clothes, I know I'm going to be made well. And it causes desperation in them that they're willing to just have their buddies carry them and just throw them out in the street just so maybe they could just touch his clothes. So contrast that with the disciples who actually are intimately walking with him and there's a little bit of wind and the waves and they're afraid and they're freaking out. And these people are willing, if I could just get a hold of a thread, if I could just touch a thread, I know I could be made well. Not that Jesus had magic clothes or anything. It wasn't the point. Jesus was meeting them where they were with their faith. Jesus in his grace and in his mercy was allowing his power to be demonstrated by these people having a contact point, a a connection point of their faith where they reached out and then he showed them who he was, but they were desperate. You see, cautiously committed people have a limited view of who Jesus really is. And oftentimes when we find ourselves in this cautiously committed group, It limits our view of who Jesus is because we just see the problem. We don't see Jesus being the answer. We just see the problem. We see ourselves as the answer. And all we can come up with is a couple of fish and some five loaves of bread. That's our best we could do. And it's not enough, is it? Because there's thousands of people. There's a bigger need that's bigger than what I can do on my own. I need something else to intervene. I need someone else to intervene that's bigger than what I can do because I can only do so much. And so many times we get so reliant upon ourselves and what we can produce and we're just like, it's not enough. And that's exactly the point. And you can keep striving and trying or you can go, you know what? It's not enough, but I know the God of more than enough. I know the God who actually spoken to nothing and everything was created. And I wanna trust him. I wanna trust him like the desperate people who were saying in their hearts, if I could just like that woman with the issue of blood, man, I heard that story and if I know that if he's gonna do it for her, he could do it for me. And Jesus is just walking by and miracles are taking place because of people's faith and because of his power and his authority over sickness and disease. Cautiously committed people miss out on the authority of Christ and truly trusting him. They also struggle with showing compassion to others because they haven't fully given up control themselves. They struggle showing compassion because when it's all about you wanting to control everything and not trusting, well, then you're not gonna, your your leash is only gonna go out so far with how compassionate you're willing to be because you're still trusting yourself. You're still looking at, well, what if? Well, what if it doesn't work out? Well, what if this doesn't go this way? And it's all fear-based and it's all control-based and it's not truly seeing the power of Jesus, not truly seeing that he truly is more than enough. 
let's look at Mark 7 and let's read these first few verses here. Now, when the Pharisees, the religious leaders, gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled. That's unwashed. Now, this is not talking about um, like the disciples were being unsanitary or they were being nasty, right? This wasn't what was going on. This was a ceremonial washing of the hands that was a tradition of the Pharisees that before they would sit down and eat, they would actually have water poured over their hands in a certain manner and they would say certain things and go through these motions and these rituals before they ate. And the Pharisees saw Jesus and his disciples, they sat down and they didn't do this. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come to the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And man, these people are just hungry, right? I mean, my hands are clean, I'm hungry, and you want me to go through all this stuff before I sit down and eat. And you're like, yeah, 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 let's just sit down and eat. You know, like when at Thanksgiving time, and you're always a little nervous if that one family member gets asked to pray because you know that that family member doesn't know how to just pray. They like are gonna pray. And like, you're grateful for it for the first 30 seconds, but then like the next 30 seconds, and then a minute later, he's like thanking God for like the neighbor's dog. And you know, he's thanking God for or like, you know, the, the fourth, fourth and fifth cousins and even people that hadn't been born yet. And you're just like, oh my goodness, right? You know what I'm talking about. You might be that person. <laughs> so be careful. <laughs> it's like cups and, and plates and dishes and it says couches. There's all these rituals. And the disciples just sit down, right? And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Oh, wow, they got real judgy real quick. They're calling their hands defiled. Oh, you guys have defiled hands. And he said to them, <laughs> this is Jesus' response. Oh, remember, before we read this, <laughs> remember, God is love, right? Love is not something that God does, it's who he is. It's his very nature, right? And if Jesus is God manifested in the flesh, we also believe that Christ was also sinless, right? And so if he's love, manifested in the flesh and he's without sin, then I think that reading this response, we have to interpret it that this was loving of Jesus to say these words. Otherwise he's not who we say that he is or scripture says that he is. That would be inconsistent, right? So this is not Jesus being a jerk. This is Jesus being loving. So let's read that with, with that in mind. Let's read these next words. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things as you do. Now, Jesus exposes one of their other traditions, and he says this idea of Corban. 
And so what this looked like was that this was kind of the idea of the young man when his parents grow old and need to be cared for because of the way that their society and their culture worked is that they would take in the parents and actually let the parents live with them and take care of them. And there had been money that had been set aside for him to actually be able to take care of them, almost like the son managing retirement and helping to take care of the family. And that was his role in his responsibility. And he said, but you've got a tradition that you came up with that actually breaks the command of honoring your father and mother in their old age because you've made a, an exemption that you say, if you take that money that was designated for your folks and you actually just give it to the church or give it to the temple, give it to the priest, then you're exempt from having to take care of your parents when they're old because you gave it to the church. And he's saying, oh yeah, I'm gonna talk about your tradition you want to talk about your traditions, this is not honoring your father and mother. You, you want it out of taking care and honoring your parents in their old age by, you just go, well, I gave it to the church, so I'm good, so they can't say anything about it. And he said, hmm, well do you do. <laughs> Jesus and his sarcasm there. Remember, still loving, never stop loving, never stopping for one moment, not putting the pause button on this love thing, because it's who he is. And he says, and there's a lot of other stuff that you do too. And he compares that to how he had, uh, they had just criticized he and his disciples. You see, these religious elitists, they uh, saw that this wasn't right in their eyes and they're trying to make a mockery of Jesus. And instead Jesus turns it around and exposes the true motive of their heart. And then we see here that truly trusting in Christ comes from our heart, and that translates into words and action. Religious pride doesn't see itself as prideful. And prideful people don't see themselves as, as being wrong, do they? No. It's hard to convince a prideful person that they're prideful. It's hard to convince someone that's prideful that they're wrong or that they need to be taught something, or that they need to grow. Religious pride just sits back with arms folded, looking to be impressed. Religious pride elevates things that aren't important to Jesus. And religious pride lacks compassion, and it accentuates self-importance. It actually elevates self-importance because of what I do or what I don't do. But if I truly am trusting in Christ, it comes from my heart and that translates into actions of compassion. It translates into my heart being at a place of teachability. It translates into my desire to trust him more. It changes me. It should make me more dependent on Christ, not more dependent on me. And then the good works that I do are coming from trusting in Christ, not as a pathway for me to elevate myself in my own eyes. But religious people take good deeds and they take things that they think make them appear more spiritual and they elevate things that God never elevates in order to make themselves look good, in order to put themselves on a pedestal. And you try to tell them and you try to show them and yet they're doing the same thing that these religious leaders were doing. You see, so we've talked a little bit about each one of these three groups, and I think that in the middle of all of this, you wonder, you know, where do I land? Because we can all bounce back and forth between these different heart positions. I think these are all positions of the heart that require us to trust 
in Christ because I know that there have been times in our lives when we can identify with the desperate and say, yes, I, I've been in situations where I've been desperate and I knew that I really needed Jesus and I reached out to him uh, because I realized he's the only answer. And there are times when also the pendulum has swung the other way and we've been in the seat of the religious prideful where we've looked down on others and we've elevated ourselves in our own eyes and thought more highly of ourselves than we should and we've actually condemned and judged others because of what they were or were not doing and they weren't measuring up to us and we thought that somehow we had reached elite status by what we had or had not done and we put ourselves in groups and categories and we began to separate ourselves instead of growing in compassion or our heart can kind of land somewhere in the middle often where we're people who, man, we struggle with compassion, we wanna be compassionate, but we're not really trusting Jesus like we should because we're cautiously committed. Desperate people realize something, church. They realize Jesus is the only option, amen? He is the only option. Let's uh, keep reading verse 14. And he called the people to him and said to them, hear me all of you and understand there's nothing outside of a person that can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered into the house and left the people, his disciples asked about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. He's saying, are you guys not seeing this? Like he had to break it down and get uh, a, a little extreme with them. Do you not understand how the body functions? You know, when you eat and you have to go potty? Like that's how elementary Jesus just got with his disciples. Did you catch that? He said, it's not what you put in. It's like, well, if I eat dirt, that must make me dirty. No, it just passes through your stomach and it goes away. It doesn't make your whole body dirty just because you eat dirt. It's like, no, this is how the body works. So this is also, he uses that as, because they're like, what does this mean? You know, the disciples are just like looking for this deep meaning. And he's like, it's pretty simple, you guys, right? Oh, I love the story. This has nothing to do with my sermon. But I love the story <laughs> when, when like, uh, Lazarus dies. You guys remember this? Jesus loves Lazarus. Lazarus is like his buddy, right? They're close. They're, they're friends. He hears that Lazarus is dead and they're like, oh, um, uh, and they're like, oh my goodness. Like, well, well, let's go see him. And it's like, uh, guys, we need to go see Lazarus cause he's, uh, he's asleep. And they're like, oh, like, is he taking a nap? Is he tired? Like, what are we going to do? And he looks at him and goes, guys, Lazarus is dead. Like, I just love just the black and white part. It's funny to me. It's weird. <laughs> And this is one of those moments where Jesus is like, guys, huh, do you not understand what I'm saying here? He's saying these are the things that defile the heart. Greed, envy, strife, bitterness. This idea of thinking you're above others. This is why you need to recognize that those are the things that you actually need help with. Those are the things you actually need forgiveness for. Those are the things that you need to wash not just washing your hands. You need your heart 
to be washed. Amen, church? All right, let's keep reading. Verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he, created a ho- he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he, uh, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Listen to the desperation in this. She comes and falls down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast out the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in the bed with the demon gone. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went down to Sidon and to the Sea of Galilee into the region of Decapolis. And they brought him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ear. And after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphtha. That is, be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously that they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and he makes the mute speak. Here's Jesus and he's reaching people that no one has reached. And he's showing compassion because that's what he does. These people, you hear the desperation in their stories, falling at his feet, pleading with him, making statements of great faith, even when it didn't make sense. And here in this moment, you see that this is the heart of God. And here's what compassion will do, church. Compassion will move you to do something no one else will to reach people that no one else has. Compassion will move you to do something no one else will. No one else had reached out to these people. A lot of people, even those who were lepers, were not even allowed to be touched. And Jesus could have healed a leper without physically touching them, but he chose to touch the leper. He interacted with this person, and they felt physical touch from someone who was clean and pure and had not been you know, stricken with this disease of leprosy, and they'd only been amongst their leper colony, separated. Here you see the compassion of Jesus, Jesus touching this man who was deaf, You see him touching people that no one else is willing to touch, doing things no one else is willing to do, and that's what compassion will do. It doesn't make sense to everybody around you, but it will move you to do something no one else will, to reach someone that no one else has. Let's read these next few verses here in chapter 8. In those days, then again, a crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and they have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? What? <laughs> what? <laughs> After everything we've been through? Like, we're in a desolate place. Like, there's not even fish and bread, Jesus. Like, I don't know. What are we going to do? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? (laughs) I think that's how he said it, too. They said, seven. Last time you only had five. Just think what I could do with seven. 
And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he, um, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples. And they went to the district of Dalmantua. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. And he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got in the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread and only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Because <laughs> these guys are sharp. <laughs> and Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? <laughs> Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves and the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And seven for the 4,000. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Do you not still see it? And here's these religious leaders demanding a sign. Here's people saying, impress us, Jesus. Do something that we want you to do. Do a trick for us, whatever. Jesus said, no. No sign's going to be given to, you, to this generation. And I'm frustrated for Jesus at this point. Verse 22, and they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. They're begging him. They brought this man. They're desperate. And he took the blind man by the hand, led him out to the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hand on him, he asked, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes and the sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Here's our big idea for today, church. Growing in trusting Christ requires repentance of pride, fully trusting him and pursuing him with a passionate desperation. That's what we all need to focus on because all of our hearts can be in one of these three positions. And we must grow in trusting him. We must repent of our pride. Whether you think you're prideful or not, God, show me, help me see so I can repent. Help me to repent of this so I can learn to trust you more fully, even when it doesn't make sense. And I wanna pursue you with a hunger and a passionate desperation. And now let's read these last few scriptures together. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the way of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and one of the, maybe one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. You see, 
Jesus tells him in other gospels that flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Peter went from the state of being hard-hearted. He went from the state of being cautiously committed. And now all of a sudden, Peter sees something he didn't see before. Peter's eyes were open. God opened his eyes to see who Jesus really was. And in that moment, he moves from being cautiously committed to now seeing, oh, wow, wait a minute, you are the Christ. I see it. I get it now. He finally saw Jesus for who he was, and here's what it required, and here's what it requires of you and me. We have to let go of who we want Jesus to be and instead say, God, show us who you are not who I want you to be. You see, so many of us have held on to our idea of who we want God to be, and we've created God in our own image, and that's pride, and that's selfishness, and that's even trying to control God. And God is requiring that our pride be something that we recognize, that we repent of, and say, Lord, show me who you are. Help me to trust in who you say you are, who you've shown me that you are in your faithfulness, and help me to grow in that. And help me to pursue that with a desperate hunger, with a passion. You see, the Holy Spirit was working in Peter, and I believe the Holy Spirit is working in this place and in every one of you and in those who are online. And I believe the Holy Spirit is doing what only he can do in hearts and lives. And my hope and my prayer today is that we come to a place where our eyes are open. No matter where our heart position may be, and we see our need for Jesus... And we see him for being more than enough. We see him for being preeminent. We see him for being truly the one who has all authority. We see him as the one we can trust. And that's who he's called us to be and what he wants us to do. That's what he's requiring of us. And so let's pray. And then I have an announcement to make for us. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. And we pray that your word would penetrate our hearts and change us from the inside out. Do what only you can do in every heart and life. Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.